of the Pew Bible. 1664. Say one more time. It's on page 1664 if you'd like to follow along. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenaeus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The word of the Lord. Hey guys. If you're new this week, this is part two of a message, so it just is. Last week I said that this passage clarifies really well for us that what's gospel ordinary, what's, or, what's, what's just ordinary life for people who have been really changed by the, the gospel, the message of Jesus, isn't typical humanity. What's typical among human beings is not what the gospel produces ordinarily. One of the um, things that happened in my life last Two Wednesdays ago was um, <clears throat> I got a call from a friend, Pastor Harold Rayford, to come and be an NAACP observer of the protest that was going to be happening downtown that morning. And I was there from nine when it started until noon when it was having its trial at the Capitol. And <clears throat> it was a very enlightening experience. And he actually invited me. He said, I wanted you to see this in person. I wanted you to experience this in person. And um, so I was at this this protest all morning. And then I had already been scheduled to be at a police training that evening. So at five o'clock, I was at one of the hotels in town, and I was like at this big police training seminar that I then went to the next day for the rest of it, because I, I do like chaplaincy and I hang out with, and I have done the police training for security stuff related to our security team here. And so like I got pepper sprayed at one of them and all that kind of stuff. I think I get tased at the next one. So that'll be fun. <clears throat> 
Um, and so I was in these two cultures that are in some ways kind of separate, in some ways um, sort of at antagonistic poles of a present moment, both of whom exist, exist because they're trying to do something about typical humanity. Typical humanity behaves in such ways that for, from time immemorial, it was believed that we needed constables or somebody who was armed that could do something about things. And there has been this whole profession throughout the history of the human race where there were people appointed to do such things and trained to do them. And then there were other people who were at the protest who were saying, uh, what's, what's typically happening isn't okay. We object to what is, we, we feel like is typical. And we want something different to happen. And although both of them, I think, may have some good influence, I think both of them hopefully will, neither one's a cure. Neither one's going to cure the problem. Being a police officer, they're not even trying to. They're just trying to stop the bleeding, right? And this is, this, one of the reasons for that is, is that gospel transformation is necessary to avoid typical humanity. God has not been sovereignly ruling over all things and, and working towards a certain end. Jesus did not come and die and rise, and the Spirit was not sent to everybody who would believe, so that there would be one relatively helpful option to some of humanity if some of us so were inclined to it. God did that as a salvation for the world to save us from sin and to redeem us from all the things sin creates which is all the reasons we need police officers and all the reasons we need protests. Last week I talked about, I want to talk about four things, but I only covered three things that were part of the fact that gospel transformation changes typical human behavior. And one of those things, the first one was that it takes us from the typical avoidance of real problems to the point that because of Jesus and because we want to please him, it kind of becomes unthinkable to avoid those same problems. Normal humanity is to avoid problems as long as we, we can. Manage them as long as we can. But when you really want to please Jesus, you really want to be who he's created you to be. You want to make war against sin. You want to, you want to get after all the problems in your life. You want to live in the most God-honoring, humanity-fulfilling, image of God-fulfilling ways possible. And so you go after him. You can't— it's unthinkable to just not worry about them, right? The second is, is that if that's true, one of the things that you will naturally be drawn towards is, is God, whatever God has to say. You know, if you're like, wait a second, I don't want to be typical humanity. How do I avoid that? Well, <clears throat> listen to God. And God has spoken in creation, but creation isn't self-interpreting. And so he has given special revelation in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and what his life, death, and resurrection means, which is what we call the gospel, the good news. That Christ has died for us to save us from our sins, to bring us to God, to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit, to transform us from the inside out, and to remake us into what we were meant to be until he redeems all things, and we enjoy that with him forever. And he has given us the word of God written and scripturated in the Bible. And... The church, since its very inception and in this passage, has always attended to public Christian teaching where somebody who is as qualified as we can get takes the word of God written, sees the message of Christ in it, and exposits or explains 
its existence, what it means, how it applies, what it should do to us. And then the Christians talk about it together, fight about it with each other, work it into their lives, try to figure out what it means to live it out together. And so we have Bible studies and small groups. And all of those things are designed to take God's message and apply it to typical humanity and the problems we can no longer avoid because of what Jesus is doing in us. And then the third thing is that people who, like me, who I'm supposed to be doing that, explaining the word work, have to not do other things that will keep us from doing it. And so one of the things this passage shows is that when there's a gospel movement that's healthy, people like me can say, all these things that really must be done, I know you want to do them. That if I'm doing my job and the word of God goes forward and it does its work in you and you you are going to get to a place where you're like, I want more impact. Let me, coach, put me in. Like, what? I want to do something. And you will clamor in yourselves to have more impact. You'll be hungry for it. And when I say, hey, we got this problem over here, you'll be like, I got it. And I, I actually believe that in the language I introduced last week was a tier three leader, right? Tier one is I come and I leave and I have a nice time. And that's totally cool. And then some people will move on to tier two leadership, which is, I can hand out these bulletins if you tell me what to do. I can go to that room and not let the kids escape until Nick's done preaching. I can do some of these things. Tier three is when you, you're not given just a task, you're actually given a problem, and you solve it. You take leadership. You say, I, I know what to do. I know what to do that. I know what the gospel answer is. I'm going to pull some of these people together. We're going to go take care of it. You elders, you who have the job of the word, you go word people. I will fix this problem. So a deacon is. It's a tier three leader. And we need like 150 of them. We don't just need a deacon board. The deacon board has specific work that they do really well. And they need 100 people to help us all do our work in all of our ministries. Does that make sense? The one thing I didn't talk about, though, related to this, is actually the specific context of this passage. And the specific context of this passage is in relationship, actually, to ethnicity, race, and culture. And how it was the first thing that threatened to tear apart the church, and it has always been one of the main things that stood in the way of the church being everything it could possibly be. It has been the root of some of, of most of the, the um, controversies in the New Testament. And it was one of the things God spoke most specifically about. When in Revelation, for example, John wrote very specifically, and there around the throne was every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people praising God. And in, in Galatians, where Paul wrote that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, man nor woman, but all are one in Christ. Right. So I want to talk about that today, about how in relationship to race, ethnicity, and culture, the gospel would make us live non-typically in the ordinary life of our lives together. So the first thing is that ethnicity, race, and culture are the most typical and durable divisions in humanity. If you want to put your money on what is going to divide human beings, ethnicity, race, and culture, those are good bets. Historically, presently, 
when you look at the passage, that's clearly the issue here. It says that as the disciples were increasing, so more and more people were coming into the church, which includes Grecian Jews. So Jews from different places whose heart language was probably Greek rather than Aramaic, and they weren't really Jewish enough. And there was a cultural distinction, even though they were all Jews who had become Christians, and the widows who were Grecian widows were getting overlooked in the distribution of food to widows. So it wasn't just that there was some there was some prejudice, but that prejudice was getting practically worked out in something very real. Now, what some people don't know, and you actually have to read the passage a little bit more carefully to see this, is that the Jewish, Jewish religious life in Jerusalem actually was divided. There was a synagogue system for the Hebraic Jews. In fact, in verse 1, it doesn't say Grecian Jews and Hebraic Jews. It says Hebraics and Hellenists. There's no Jews. The assumption is that they're all Jews. That's a good assumption. And so the translators put that in for you. But it just says Hebraics and Hellenists. That's the division. The Hellenists were the Jews that were Hellenized, meaning they spoke Greek. They were impacted dramatically by Greco-Roman culture. Their Aramaic wasn't so sharp, probably. And the Hebraic Jews were the ones that they spoke Aramaic, they could read the Torah and Hebrew very easily, they weren't making language translations, and over time there wasn't really a lot of hatred between them. I mean, they get along just fine in the next chapter when they work together to kill Stephen. But they're divided because, and this is an intentional attack on you and me, they were divided because it was just easier to be separate. They were Jews. They didn't really hate each other. They just were culturally different. I don't know if they didn't like the same music. I don't know. But they just didn't naturally. There were slight differences in their values. There was a little bit of a language barrier. There were some of those things. And it was just easier to not worship together. And so they had the Grecian. They had the synagogue of the freedmen. Had a really sexy church name, right? And they had this. And that just were divided. And the apostles really didn't go for that. Right? Before we talk about that, that's actually point three, is this. Is that faith in Jesus, if you, if you and I believe in Jesus, it will undermine racial, ethnic, and cultural divisions, but it won't eradicate them. And if you walk with Jesus, and you're being transformed by him from the inside out, and some real things are happening inside of you, and you're so excited about the work of God in your life, I'm just here to tell you, that will undermine your prejudices. It will undermine some of the logic of the division. It will not actually eradicate the separation in the human family of race, culture, ethnicity. It won't actually cause you to do anything different or anyone to do anything different related to this. One of the ways this comes across is that in the first verse, the word Luke uses for complaining is the word for grumbling that you find in Exodus 16 and number 17 where the Hebrews complain against God and in one of those cases he kills a bunch of them. Meaning the people who were, the Grecian Jews who were complaining about the fact that their widows were being overlooked were not necessarily being polite. I actually think that Luke's choice of this word, because he had other options, I think his choice of this word actually indicates that they were not being nice about it. Which means this, at least, as Christians, we should be able to get past the manner by which somebody says, this is wrong. 
and listen to whether or not there's truth in it. So, for example, when I went, I went down to the, to the, um, that rally a couple Wednesdays ago, um, I would say that some of the ideas that were expressed by that group were expressed unartfully. People writing F the police on their back with big Sharpie markers, for example. Maybe not the best way to communicate how you're feeling, right? We don't need any effing racist police being chanted. You know, that, you know, those kinds of things. F the police being printed on signs premeditatedly so they can be passed out. You know, might want to say that, might not want to say that. And so I was like, this is really, really unproductive, the way this is being said. But here's the thing. Doesn't mean they're wrong about anything in particular. And so part of this is like, it doesn't matter if people are grumbling. People are going to grumble. People get their feelings hurt, and they often don't act in a godly way. And if you respond with saying, well, well, look who's not acting humbly. It just doesn't really produce productive things. And people who are really transformed by the gospel really should be able to overlook the manner by which people complain and, and attack them and say— Okay, what are you, what are they saying? What is the content of what they're saying? And is it true? Is part of it true? Can I remake their argument better than they're making it? Because to a Christian, what matters isn't power. What matters is truth. Right? And then as you go to other parts of the Bible, it's really clear that we shouldn't grumble back like that. The way a person transformed by the gospel should respond, not typical humanity, but somebody transformed by the gospel, we don't respond that way back. We say, here's what I hear you saying. (laughs) And then you try to say as clearly as you possibly can. And then you work from there. And that takes these things called self-control, humility, appropriate self-doubt, Things that the Bible constantly enjoins on us Christians as growing in because God is full of it. Can you imagine if God didn't have control of his anger? Can you imagine? There would would be no human imagining because there would be no humans. Okay? And so the fact that God is is somebody who feels appropriate anger and has 100% complete control over it, such that he can say, we can say, forget you, insert ex- expletive of your choice to God throughout the entire history of humanity, and he can say, I'm going to find a way to show them how much I love them so that they can come to me and I can forgive them before I destroy them. That's his attitude. And that attitude is enjoined on us. And when people grumbled at the apostles, they didn't respond like they were parents. They responded like they were listening and trying to lead out of humility. Does that make sense? When the gospel comes in, it does undermine division because it says that we are all in the line of Abraham. We're all brothers and sisters and heirs together. It subverts the narrative. I mean, both sides— I mean, the, the division in America is, is, tends to be fairly acutely um, white-black, but there's a growing citizen— undocumented one brewing, too. That could be pretty bad. And then there's, like, the fact that 
some other minority races are actually getting the short end of the stick because of the fight that can't get settled between blacks and whites. For example, in, in California colleges, when quotas were set up to make sure that enough African Americans were brought in, you know who, who lost out? It wasn't the white kids. It was the Asian kids. Because Asians were dramatically overrepresented because their community was producing scholars. And so when these quotas were set up, about the same amount of white kids, it was just half as many Asian kids were getting into some of the schools. Because blacks and whites couldn't get along and figure something out. So there's all kinds of problems. And so there's all, there's all these arguments about like, you hurt us, and we never did anything to you, and why won't you treat us well? And then white people since the 70s are like, you've created this paras parasite culture, and you're just— and like all kinds of terrible things thrown at each other. Everybody's being mean. Some of it's true, some of it's not. It's not all morally equivalent. But listen, I don't care what your narrative is. There is a big, in the church, there is a bigger narrative. Now, the narrative that you believe in may have a lot of truth to it, and it may need to be heard. And some of these narratives really do need to be heard. And, but you can't even start in trust expressing narratives to each other until there is a narrative that lays over all of it. And that is this. That the forgiveness that's going to be necessary when these two groups of people actually talk to each other has been purchased by the blood of the Son of God, who himself has been the most aggrieved party, but has put himself under the most unjust people to be humiliated and murdered for the redemption of all of the people who require maximal forgiveness from God himself. And if you are reconciled to God— you are the perpetrator par excellence, and you are the benefactor of forgiveness par excellence. And whenever you enter into one of these things, you, if you are a Christian, you enter in that way first. And then in humility, you recognize that the reason that was done was because God cares about justice. And you realize that the reason that people, you know why people won't, oftentimes won't forgive and they keep bringing things up and up and up again? You know why they do that? Because they don't trust you that if they really forgive you and they let it go, you will be morally serious about that same thing in the future. That's why. You think it's just because they have a black heart? And unforgiveness is black-hearted and it will poison them. But one of the reasons people don't let things go is because if they believe if they let you off the hook from an objective past offense, you will keep committing and recommit that offense in the future. Because if they don't hold you under the weight of guilt, you cannot maintain your moral seriousness through dignity and character alone. Is that true? Um, last week we had a meeting of ministers here at High Point during the week, and we only had, there were only two non-white pastors. One of them was Lloyd. And um, the leader of the group had asked an African-American pastor in town to send an email about what, what we could pray for concerning sort of the racial tension stuff that had been going on. And it was emailed to me, and I handed it off to the prayer leader. But when I read it, it said, do not pray for peace. We do not need peace. Right? And there was some more written in there. And I read that, and I, and I, 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 I handed it to I said, listen, when you read that, you may need to give me a minute to, like, translate that. Because I don't know that the ears that are going to receive are going to hear that as it was intended. And so he read it, and I said, listen, here, here's what that means, okay? What it means is this. Our African-American brothers and sisters have seen momentary flare-ups 
of things that they have experienced as long-term injustices over and over again. And here's what they find. The minute it falls out of the press, it can be, it can be legitimately avoided. And so the minute unrest stops or peace happens or whatever, what, what really quiet, quieting down is what that means, then what they know from a long experience is, is that we're not going to do anything, right? And so they have this sexy little report, we all do, about just like disparities and stuff in Dane County, how it's like one of the worst places in America for an African-American to live, right? Yet nobody cares about that. That doesn't play. It's a bunch of paper with some graphs that were written by some uber blue Democrats. But the numbers are still mostly right, and nobody cares. What people care about is, was there a protest, and how is this happening, and is there going to be a blah, blah, blah? And then our minority neighbors are saying, okay, there's got to be some way to marshal this to pay attention to what we think the real problem is and maybe do something, right? Because we're a populist democracy. We've got no self-control, right? And so, you know, and then the white people are like, you guys don't have any self-control. And their basic argument is, you don't have enough self-control to make yourself care about this when it's not in the news, right? People just talking past each other because, and so what happens? Public forgiveness isn't offered. There has to be this dynamic of perpetration and white guilt. It has to continue. Why? Because otherwise, we cannot trust each other to actually do anything with each other. And why? Because of a failure of character, because of a failure of trust, because of a failure of interest, because we follow the little blinking dot wherever it goes, because we're obsessed with the news cycle that is utterly irrelevant, because we'll have dumped into our phones things that only matter for 14 seconds, rather than the very things that ruin people's lives for generations. And then it's so easy to be self-righteous and be like, white privilege. You know what I mean? The, the point is, is that we can become Christians and we can be transformed by the gospel and we can walk with Jesus and we can grow enormously in personal holiness and all of those things can happen. That will not actually eradicate the profound separation that is normal, typical humanity between people of different races, cultures, and ethnicities. That's what that means. And people have argued a lot about this in relationship to, you know, the church being the most segregated hour in America. Here's the problem with that. The word segregated in that context is too ambiguous. Because segregation sounds like Jim Crow, that is, enforced. It sounds like churches more than anybody stand at the door and keep out whoever's not part of their group, which is totally false, right? When people who aren't white, because that's just the majority in here, come into this church, they, they, I don't know about you, I intentionally seek out non-white people and give them a disproportionate amount of my attention. Just because I have to. I just have to. That's part of hospitality. You take the person that is most likely not to feel maximally welcomed, and you give a disproportionate amount of effort to making them feel welcome. It's basic human hospitality. It's not, it's not racist welcoming, okay? And you should do that too. And when I go to black churches, I get hugged and kissed and fed and treated wonderfully. 
and no white people go worship at that church. The segregation of the Sunday hour is the segregation of convenience, interest, sub-values. It's voluntary. We voluntarily don't worship together. It's not Jim Crow. It's none of those things. It's every illustration I pick moves one way rather than another. Every time I, I tell a story, I, I can choose a sports metaphor or I can choose a gardening metaphor. I can, the minute I open my mouth in English, I alienate a whole bunch of people who speak Spanish or Farsi. You know what I'm saying? Everything that we do moves towards one person and away from another by definition, but when we move towards people. There's very little, few things you can do that have no cultural implications at all. I would love it if I could walk up here and everything that I did was 100% culturally neutral. It's literally not possible to do for more than two seconds. It's just a fact of human life. But what it produces is ultimate, is almost entirely separate ethnicity, races, and cultures. And what that produces is really bad things. That's what it produces. Um, one of the sociologists at the Multicultural Church um, Conference, Lloyd and I and some others went to, said that the number one, because people say the church is the most segregated, the church has nothing to say about this. Here's, here's what they find out. They found out the number one place where African Americans have risen socioeconomically, educationally, in personal well-being, and in a spiritual sense of unity with other races is in multicultural churches, churches with more than 20% the non-dominant race, right? Which is a little odd, you know, huh, well, more than anything? Of course, of course, because who do you move toward? People you trust people you really believe you have a shared culture and value with. That when you think through something and they think through something, you're going to come to the same conclusion. And when you go to church together and you listen to the same preaching and you go to the same Bible studies and you work through things together and then you go, oh, so-and-so is going to San Francisco. We got to hire a new person. And that person's already in your church, already in your life. You've already had conversations with them. You just naturally trust that they're going to have a better work ethic than, than some average person. They're going to agree on things. Think about this. In most of the stuff that's been written on leadership development and organizational development over the last 20 years, one of the C's of you need competence, you need blah, blah, blah. One of the C's is culture. But what does culture mean, right? Well, that you get the basic values, blah, blah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but here's the thing. People of a different culture than you are always going to seem a little off. And so when you say, well, I'm looking for somebody that has the right culture here at High Point. Who am I going to, what does that mean? It means that they're a lot like Nick Gibson, which means expressive Italians are going to do better, you know, than somebody else. And so gospel leadership on one level just has to absolutely reject and make no peace. See, I cannot actually control anybody. I can't make this church a truly multicultural place where everybody from every tribe, every tongue, every nation comes and worships Jesus. I can't. I would, listen, I would love to be doing simultaneous translation and Spanish slides in like, in like two years. I would love that. I'd love it, right? But I can't make anybody do anything. But what I can do is not make peace with this, the way things are, the way we just naturally do things. I can't do that. And that's what these apostles did. They realized that 
that division, just saying like, well, the Greek Jews are over here and the Hebraic Jews are over here, why don't we just split two? That was not an acceptable solution to them, right? But maintaining Hebraic control of all the leadership also was not acceptable. And you can't just put the complainers in charge. So they said, what we need is we need some people who are, have a good reputation, are full of, full of the Holy Spirit, right? And full of wisdom. And you, everybody, well, we'll select them together, but they've got to have those three things, and we will have leadership. And one of the things in modern language that you see in the disciples when they do this, the apostles, is a few things that I really think we need to have, all of us. One of them is what people tend to call cultural IQ, that you even know when you're offending people of other cultures. Somebody told me this between services. I don't even know if it's true, okay? I don't even know if it's true. But she said that she was doing a certain kind of ministry in a situation, and she was told that touching a Korean boy on the top of the head was, like, sexually not okay, right? In India, where I've gone a number of times, I brought this lady, Candace Keller, with me. She's about that tall, super jolly, extremely godly, teaches the Bible really well. She came with me to India. She is like an unrepentant winker. She winks at people. She's just a southern sweetie, you know? Hey there, sweetie, you know? Well, it's really sexually inappropriate in India to wink at anybody, right? And she had to just like, like walk around like this to not get in trouble, you know? But part of that is just, we don't even really, here's the thing. Why do, why have, I'm, I'm going to guess at a number here that I think is credible, okay? Why have 75 to 125 non-white people visited this church in the last 11 months, and most of them come three weeks and don't stay? Why is that? Is it because we're like openly racist or something, or we don't like them, or we're like, I think you're a different shade. Like, do you, I mean, is that, is that why? Right? And it's not that. It's that I'm walking down the hall and I can turn towards this person and that person and I just turn towards this person. It's I could listen a little clearer, but I cut the conversation a little bit shorter. It's I'm walking towards that person and I just let them walk by me. It's they're in my pew sitting right next to me. Basic humanity says I would say hi. And I just don't because I just feel a little uncomfortable. And it's really just because I'm an introvert, but they may not interpret it that way. It's all, the, it's all the little things, and some of those little things are cultural IQ things. You know, if I go to the African-American church, I'm going to get treated totally different than here. I'm going to shake a lot more hands. I'm going to hug a lot more people. I'm going to get kissed by a lot more people. And you, could you imagine if somebody from that church visited here, that they would get the impression that maybe we're emotionally cold towards them when we're just emotionally cold? <laughs> You know? And so part of this is it's often called just cultural IQ. Do we really understand how people that are from a different culture, ethnicity, or something, just how they feel, how they think? How, one, somebody came to me last service, and they said, listen, he says, they said, Nick, you have to keep hammering on this because there are so many biracial couples and biracial children that are being torn apart because there is no church for them to go to where all of them, it just naturally fits. 
It's like they go to a white church and the black part of them doesn't fit, or they go to a black church and the white part of them doesn't fit, and they just feel like there's really just nowhere that they can really be. And honestly, I've been looking at who's been visiting our church, and we've accomplished very little multiculturally, but I've already seen the number of biracial couples double or triple in terms of visiting High Point. Because they're looking for a place where they can just be themselves. And it's natural, and it's not just one thing. Does that make sense? Hospitality is just inviting people. If you invite people, and you try to do it humbly, then usually they will correct you if you are open. And you just say, just come and and be with us, and you'll learn an awful lot. Right? I've learned an awful lot just by, by saying, can I come and listen to you guys talk about that? Or I'm going to say something that's going to make you really angry probably. Can you tell me why this is crazy? Right? Trust is what most of this is based on. And so creating a space of trust where people can really trust you, I'll talk about that more in just a second, is incredibly important. And a big part of that is just humility. Um, You know, one of the things I will do at the end of the sermon is I will write an email to some people who aren't white and say, what should I have not said and why? And I will probably get some responses. And probably there'll be really gracious responses. I sent one of those texts out last week. I was like, I saw your face during this part of my sermon. Did I say something I shouldn't have? And the text I got back was, no, I was sick to my stomach because I have the flu. (laughs) And I was like, well, thanks for coming to church. You know? But part of it is just for me to say, and I'll say this to all of you right now. I'll say this to all of you right now. Please correct me. My cultural IQ is not what it could be. You had, it's open season on Nick Gibson. Try to do it lovingly, but just get your point across. Do not leave an anonymous note. I'll throw it in the garbage and won't read it. At least write somebody else's name on it. <laughs> you know? But humility and being able to reset the conversation and reset the relationship and having appropriate self-doubt about what you're so sure about is really important. And then lastly, and this is actually what they do in this passage, and this is the thing that's really sometimes really hard for people. This is where people start going, I don't know if I want this. Here's what has to happen. Majority leadership has to trust minority leadership that they trust, trust Jesus. Majority leadership needs to trust minority leadership that they trust, trust Jesus. That's really important. Um, you You have to invite people to be disproportionately represented, who you know are, who you believe strongly are trustworthy, not because they will think things through like you, but because they really trust Jesus. The, the reason why that's important, well, you can see this in the passage. If you look at these names, a couple of them are, are probably fairly Hebrew. Stephen is probably a fairly Hebrew name. Philip could go either way. But the Nick-based names, Nicanor and Nicholas, the Nick comes from the Greek verb nikao, hence Nike, right? What does Nike mean? It means victory, right? It means, so when you name your kid Nick, you're naming them winner, which is a little (laughs) self-congratulatory, right? And so those names are probably of Greek origin, 
right? So what you've probably got is a leadership team that's been selected that has a significant representation of, you have got maybe have one or two Hebraic Jews, you looks like maybe three or four Grecian Jews, and then you've got one guy who's a Gentile who converted to Judaism who came to Jesus, who's a really Greek Jew. So the disciples see that and they say, okay, we need something that brings unity, that is going to pluralize control of the leadership here, but we need to get the right sort of Hellenist, the right sort of Greek. We need a gospel-transformed Hellenist. And when some people will hear that, they will say, okay, Nick, what do you mean by gospel-transformed? Because does that just mean a captured minority? When you say you want a gospel-transformed person to help, to be in leadership, is what you're looking for somebody of another ethnicity, race, or culture that has actually been captured by your culture? And so can function easily within the majority culture? Is that what you mean by good reputation? The white people like them? And my response to that is, I hope not. I hope not. But good reputation in the context of Acts 6 does mean that everybody respected them. Which in our context would be the non-white people and the white people. Right? I can't promote—it doesn't work for me to promote somebody to leadership who's not of the majority race, that all the people in the majority race really believe they're just, they just have an ax to grind about something. They have to believe that that person ultimately is not beholden to the majority race or the minority race. They are beholden to Jesus. And sometimes they're going to agree with the majority race's general cultural assumptions, and sometimes they are going to agree with the minority, and sometimes they're going to be like, you're all smoking something. We're doing none of those things. We need to do this because they ultimately they trust Jesus. And the reason why that's so important is because you are never going to get a perfect minority person in anything to, to bring up anywhere if you're in the majority culture, because they're always going to seem a little off. Just like I seem a little off to—well, I seem a little off to most everybody. But let's, I mean, especially people who are not of my culture. If you're not—if you're not Italian, like, um, did anybody see Nick Gibson's sermon bingo this week? Okay, so one of them on there was Nick interrupts himself Which is kind of a joke But I'm Italian, of course I interrupt myself We, we, just, interrupt, we just interrupt all the time that's, that's how Italians have conversations Right? If you're Dutch You're like, no, you're just a jerk You know, like that's just mean My wife is from a Jewish background And when we, you know, for years in our marriage She's just like, um, I'm gonna start A sentence, and I would like to Complete it Even if you feel like you're done listening halfway through, you know? We've been married 16 years Friday, last Friday. But so what you were looking for is you have to look for universal godliness that the Bible describes as godliness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They believe the gospel. They think of the centrality of the word. They trust in Jesus. They believe in orthodox faith. Those things. When you interview them or you talk to them, they're going to seem a little off. You're going to reason through things, and they're going to think this, and you're going to think that. Like, there have been times where, I mean, like, the hardest relationship I have with Lloyd's because we got to run this organization together. Like, we got to lead together. Like, I have friends across town. They would do what they want in their organization. I do what I want in mine. Whatever, right? I don't care if you do that. We don't agree. We can have a nice little conversation. Lloyd and I have to actually try to agree. And we'll have conversations, and sometimes it takes a while. And sometimes I gotta be like, you know what, we gotta go that way. And sometimes he, he says, okay, we'll just go that way. That's just life. 
That's what it's going to be like when we went to that conference. Basically, the one thing that was said in every session was, this is going to be hard. You're going to have to work at this. It's tough. But listen, let me, well, let me see what the next slide is first. I don't have time for this right now. Okay. The result, okay, the result was this. This was the first great trial of the church that could have just could have destroyed it from the inside out. And they made the leap on this thing. And because of that, what happened was the word of God spread. Lots of new disciples came to Jesus. And even people who were extraordinarily antagonistic came to faith. I don't know why. I don't know if there were some of these priests that were in the Jewish synagogue or, or, or that these people were part of the temple. And they're like, wait a second. They, they're accomplishing something that we with our shared Jewish culture can't even accomplish. And they're like these crazy, like, Gentile—I mean, just there's just crazy uneducated people, right? And I believe that before we talk to Lisa, I believe there's some things that can only happen in the church when the church is intergenerational. I believe that. I believe I could have a church of 20-somethings, and I could preach to them about family— and family formation and vocation and moving through the stages of life and all that stuff. And they would, they would hear it and they would forget it and it wouldn't do anything for them. And I think only in intergenerational churches when they can actually see somebody being a husband and a wife, they watch kids run around, they're invited into your life, that, where intergenerational works at all generations, that people actually get a real vision for all generations. And they, be, they, they embrace the reality of their life and they can enjoy it in a way they never thought they could. And they can see that they can serve Jesus through all the stages of their life. I actually believe that the same thing is true in regards to multicultural churches. I believe that there are some things that God wants to form in us that actually will never be formed in us until we actually experience the reality of being a multicultural church. And the baseline definition of that, just so we have something to aim for, is more than 20% of the church is not the majority race or ethnicity. Okay. And like, Norwegian Swedish doesn't count. Okay. Um, let, me, let me try to explain why this way. Because I want you to really believe this. I want this to be a conviction that there is somebody you're meant to be in Christ that you will never be until you are part of a multicultural body of Christians. I want you to believe that. And here's my argument for it right now. I'll make more as we get through Acts because there's other places it comes up. In about, in about three, I can't remember the date. Let's just say 337. There was a guy named Athanasius, nicknamed the Black Dwarf. Apparently he was about that tall, oil black. In God's providence, the reason you believe in orthodox doctrine of Christ today. The world was against him. And his response was, then I will be contramundum against the world because Jesus is God, fully God from eternity past. The Father did not create the Son. The Son is uncreated. He fought the world, was exiled five times. His people loved him so much, the Romans could never find him. There was always some backwater fisherman that would hide him. The only time he came into public during his exiles was that they were trying him in absentia of witchcraft and they had the hand of somebody who was in his church that they said he had used for black arts purposes. And Athanasius showed up with the guy with both his hands at the trial. And then there's some joke about like the other bishop that was trying to said, he's got a third hand, that's the witchcraft. 
That must be a government job. Um, just kidding. Just kidding. The point is, is that 1,700 years later, a white Anglican in England wrote in an introduction to a new translation of that book, C.S. Lewis. He said, you have to read old books. He said, the reason you have to read old books is because they're outside of your time. It'd be fine to read books from the future, but you just can't get at those. And so you've got to read them from the past. And people in the past have different assumptions than you and different experiences than you. They think about things different. Their values are different than you. But then some are exactly the same. And when you read them, you find out how culturally captive you are. Right? And he said, therefore, between every book by a living person you read, read a book by a dead person. Right? You know another way to do something similar to that? Talk to an old person. Just somebody who's a couple generations older than you. Or if you want, if you like a younger person, if you're older. In both cases, it'll open up something. Some kind of blindness of one generation or another. And you can work at things and you can say, well, what does Jesus say about that? And you can work that out. Intergenerational life creates this sort of awakening from cultural blindness. Right? And I think multicultural living does too. There are things in my life that I have become awakened to that I would not have seen if I had not entered into and invested in multicultural relationships. You would not have known to tell me they were wrong with me because they're true about you too. If you're of my basic cultural lineage, background, just whatever. And so having people who are different synchronically, like in your time, but they're different from different spaces, those people, when they come in, they have stuff to tell you. I remember when um, I was a youth pastor in Lake Forest, we had a partnership with a youth group in Costa Rica. Lake Forest is a very wealthy suburb of Chicago. Most of my kids, I mean, I drove an 89 Accord to youth group, and they drove BMWs and Land Rovers. Okay, the biggest problem was how to keep them from buying Coke at the high school because they had enough money to buy it whenever they felt like it. Okay, that was our youth group. Well, not all of them, obviously, right? But we had this partnership with Costa Rica, and so every year, we would, one year we would go down there, and then the next year we would raise money, and their youth group would come up to Lake Forest, and they'd go back and forth. And the first year we were sending kids down there, the Lake Forest parents were like, you can't send our kids to Costa Rica. It's dangerous down there. That's Central America. There's like those gorilla people with machine guns and blah, 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 right? I'm not really sure. And we're like, all right, we're still going, so I don't know. Do what you want, right? So we go down there. And there was one girl who got an eye infection, and that was like the worst of it, right? So then the next year, they come up for us, right? And we go, we'll take them to a Cubs game, right? So we take this Costa Rican youth group to a Cubs game where there was a murder. Right? A little ironic, right? And it was kind of this moment where we were like, and then the, the youth groups would sit down and talk to each other about what they learned. And the Costa Rican youth group, you know what they said? They said, we're so glad our dads do not have your dad's jobs. Like, we like seeing our fathers. And like this thing where you do where like you never see your father and they provide the money to live in your really super nice houses. Like, that's really cool for you, I guess. But like, I'm so glad I see my dad. And it was like, like, it was very interesting to watch our students and their parents begin to respond to that. Because... That was a very kindly given, terrifying indictment from enormously poor Costa Ricans 
that nobody else in, in my church, we couldn't give each other. We were all, everybody's driving Land Rovers except for Alexi spinning the Saturn between like three cars with me terrified in the passenger seat. Like, it, I mean, it was just that was just who we were as a church. And you just can't see what you are. And I really believe that a true intercultural life will produce in us discipleship. I, we'll get to the whole like, will the city see it and will that matter? But it has to do something in us first. And when it does, then we'll have credibility in the city. Then we'll have credibility in the city. Because an amazing things will happen when, through the trust that's formed. And people will see us and go, that, that doesn't happen anywhere else. We'll be like, mm-hmm. and it wasn't happening here like three months ago. But, like, but it is now. And, you know, if Jesus didn't say anything else in the parable about the two sons— you remember this one? There's two sons, and, and, and the father says, hey, you go out and work for me, right, to the two sons. And one goes, no. <laughs> but then later he goes out and does it, and then the other son goes, okay, dad, and, but he never goes out to the field. The moral of that story, better late than never, right? She said, which one do you think God likes better? And they were like, probably the guy who said he wouldn't and then did it. Yep, that's right. Better late than never, right? I just, I just believe in relationship to multicultural life and multi, and multi-ethnic church. I just think that we're getting to a point where this is what's next for us. When I got here five years ago, we were like, let's just not go bankrupt. <laughs> right? And the church had worked really hard for like four years just to get to the point where we were like, at the bottom of that sheet was a black number. You know what I mean? And that was amazing. And like people came and new people were coming to the church. And then we were like, okay, you know, there, this, this absence of people in their 20s is a problem, right? And so we focused on that as a church. And then there were people in their 20s, and then there were college students here. And then we had enough money to hire a youth pastor full-time so that we, we could focus on teenagers, so that they weren't a missing gap. And, and on we moved. And then we specifically focused on trying to get the genders even in the church, because lots of churches have, like, way more women than men. The last few times we kind of were really close to 50-50. A couple counts have been just a few more men than women, which is unheard of in American churches. It's amazing. And then the church has grown and grown and grown, which has been so cool. And then people came to Jesus, which was really awesome. We've baptized new believers. And that's all super exciting. But here's the thing. Do you, well, like, what do you think is, what do you think is next? read the Bible, we think about these things. What do you think's next? See, I, I actually kind of think this is next. I think we keep with evangelism. We keep doing all our core values. We keep doing what we are as a church. But where, where's probably the—what's the next dimension that God might add to us? And I actually believe that if I look at the Bible and try to figure that out, I actually think it's this. And I don't want to become a different sort of church. I want to be a gospel-centered, evangelical, Bible-believing, expositional preaching church that is more multicultural, that is more fully welcoming, that is more able to have very different kinds of sheep in a place where biracial couples and families find a wonderful home, where, do you know how many couples in our church have adopted kids of other races of themselves? A lot of them. A number of, a number of, um, a number of Chinese kids that have been adopted are growing up in this church. There's, um, there, there's um, another, another couple with a, a young African orphan that they adopted. There's more families in High Point that are now adopting um, American, African-American children that are up for adoption. They're all coming into this church. I think, it's God, I think God is moving in those families' hearts, but we have to be the kind of church that is ready 
to be with and to care for and to love and to be the sort of church that those kids can grow up not feeling split in two. And so, I don't know how you feel about that. Okay, I don't know how you feel about it. But would you pray about it? Would you think about it? Would you, would you think about what does the Bible really teach and who could we really be and are there ways in which we don't have to be partisan to be multi-ethnically loving? And would you consider that maybe there are things that God wants to do in you that he, that, that re- actually requires this step of obedience and interest and this additional discipline in how we live together as a church before we will reap the reward and benefit of how he will bring us to deeper sanctification through it? That's all I ask. Would you just, would you do that? And then we'll go from there. Let's pray. Father, I pray that um, as we think about this stuff and um, work it through and try to live in obedience to your word and especially in doing things that we may not really have a great idea about how to do them. Would you first please help us to just get our hearts right about it and to care and to um, look at the things that matter to you in the scriptures and to understand that for you this is a blood issue, that the blood of Christ bought people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that there are there are hundreds of South Indians and South Koreans and Bhutanese refugees and people living right around us, that there's African-American men and women raising kids very close to us. Just down the street is West High School and the community center. And would you just open our eyes to our neighbors and where we live and who we are and just not overload us, but like help us get some kind of idea of what it would look like to live with arms wide open to the humanity that you have died for. And in a way that isn't divisive, but is unifying, would you lead us to a place where we can walk in some of these things? Pray in Jesus' name, amen.